You're listening to 92Y Talks. The close relationship between the U.S. and Israel is unique in the world and crucial to the security of both nations. In this episode, former Israeli ambassador to the U.S. Michael Oren discusses Iran's threat to Israel with author Jonathan Rosen. The conversation was recorded on June 21st, 2015 in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. So, uh, I have a ton of questions, too many, but, uh, and there are things we have to get to, but your book is so full of history and politics and Jewish paradox and dire warnings. Those are the things we, we will Very have Jewish to get subjects, to. Jewish subjects, by the way. Exactly. Paradox, but, dire warnings. But at its core, yeah. it's a memoir. And I love and am fascinated by the personal dimension of it. Uh, I love this Montaigne quote that even a king on a throne sits on his own behind. Uh, <laughs> for, for me, that, that's like the height of morality and reality testing. And your body and your story are really the location of this book. Mm-hmm. You are the bridge, and you talk about being a bridge between America and Israel. Your family are characters. And I'm wondering how you made that choice. It doesn't seem like an an incidental choice. It's a real departure from how you write. It's not how you had to write a book about, say, being in Washington. So what was it like? Did you sit with your family and say, I'm giving up my body, our story, you're going to be characters? Okay. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> Shalom. Good evening, everybody. Uh, let me just, let me just, thank you. Uh, let, me, let me introduce some of the major characters in this book. My wife, Sally, um, of Jefferson Airplane fame. Uh, my sister Karen, my brother-in-law Arnie, my mother Marilyn, who's in the front cover, and my father. So today is um, Father's Day, I'm told. We don't have Father's Day in Israel. Um, we have four Father's Day. <laughs> it's every day. <laughs> but uh, Dad, happy Father's Day. Um, <laughs> I have never before in my life written in the first person. I've written, God knows how many thousands of pages, but none of them have been in the first. And I've never had to write a sentence basically that said, I felt this, I experienced this, I feared this. Um, And the transition for me was profound. Um, One of the themes throughout the book is transition. How you go from being an individual citizen, how do you become a soldier, how do you go from being back to a citizen, how you then transform yourself into an ambassador, who is an ambassador, who are you when you get on on CNN, who are you when you get in front of the Y. Then how you go back to being a civilian. And in the end, I even talk about my ultimate, uh, my last transformation was to go from being a citizen to a politician. And each one of these are, are major transformations. I think the the question of who you are um, is always among the most pressing questions that any writer faces. And I think you know as someone who's written fiction and nonfiction, where's your voice? Who are you? Now, it took me years to figure out that an historian's voice has to be at one point Olympian but non-condescending. It has to be omniscient but humble. You have to come down from on high and tell somebody, here's what happened on June 5th, 1967. But with that, and, and inform them. The, the, the person who's writing a, a memoir, a memoirist has to, has to have a different type of voice. It's a voice that has to be authentic. It can be a little self-deprecating, but not too self-deprecating. It can be prescient, but not too prescient. So I made a list of mine for myself. 
I should show you this list of, of how the, the, the parameters of the voice of this book. And every day when I sat down at 8.30 in the morning, and I wrote from 8.30 in the morning to 1.30 so I could write a 400-page book in one year, I looked at these parameters and made sure I was following them. Just a small example, I don't know, of many. One of the parameters were nuggets of wisdom. What does nuggets of wisdom mean? Well, I was just telling you downstairs. I noticed that Israelis don't curse. We don't have curse words in Hebrew. We don't. We have, he, the Bible Afterwards, doesn't contain, contain a lot of curse words. The only curse words we have are Russian and Arabic, and we don't know what they mean. We really don't know what they mean. But in, in Washington parlance, every other word is an, is an expletive. Every other word is, is, has four letters. And, um, and it's the way they pe people speak. So I point this out in the book. That's a nugget. A nugget would be, one of the very important one was, um, Americans salute the rank, but not the person. Something I learned from my father who had spent a lot of time in the US Army. Americans support the rank. Americans have great regard for the office of the presidency. They may detest the president, but they have a great respect for the office of the presidency. Israelis don't salute anything, <laughs> anything, even the rank. But it's a very important distinction to make. It's a nugget. So that was one of my parameters there was an example. So it was, um, I could take your question to a more difficult point, and that's a political direction. Why write this memoir now? Um, some people have noted that I've written it relatively quickly after I finished my job in Washington, which was on October 1st, uh, 2013. Fact matters, it's not such a, long, a longer distance of time than uh, Hillary Clinton or Leon Panetta or Robert Gates. It's, it's pretty much that decent interval. And by Israeli law, I had to wait a certain period of time. Um, and, and I got all the proposals. I wrote the book and put rather immense pressure on Random House to bring it out not in September, October, which is the book selling period, but to bring it out in June now. Now, because Israel is at a crucial, and I would go further and say fateful juncture, as the, uh, the agreement uh, on nuclear deal with Iran approaches, literally in the coming days. Uh, and then after that, uh, a, a perhaps a, a major French initiative in the Security Council, which will have very profound ramifications for Israel and its security. So there's a reason why the book came out now. And yet, what I think is so interesting is that by writing it as a personal story, that you were Michael Bornstein and you became Michael Oren, mm -hmm. there's a way in which you're enacting something authentic that is part of the story of Zionism itself that you're telling, because it's like who you are as a person the, the experiences of your children are uh, a kind of authenticity that is the opposite of the abstract theory. But I, I wanted to ask another book-related question, because you tell this great story about how when you become ambassador, you know, nobody tells you what you're supposed to know or do. There's no course. Who are these people? And you... um <laughs> the bathrooms. Right. You gave yourself, you felt you had to give yourself a course in Obama. Yes. So what did you do? You went out and you read his books, and his books are also memoirs. And one of the things that you say about him, which is so interesting for me, is that you, you felt that he wanted to make himself a bridge as well, a living bridge, but a bridge uh, between many different groups, but a bridge among other groups between America and the Islamic world. And so uh, one of the things I'm, I'm curious to ask you is partly how the Cairo speech, which you talk about as a kind of touchstone, in which seemed to put that desire into crystallize it and, and, and really have its, a large effect on you and the people who watched it with you, how that worked 
how that works in the book, how that worked in your mind, what it taught you about what was to come, but also how his bridge between um, America and the Islamic world and your bridge between America and Israel, how they stand in relationship to each other. Well, I, I, in the book I say that I, I actually could, I could identify with someone who thought of himself as a human bridge uh, between cultures, um, between peoples. Um, there was a big difference between someone who thought of the bridge between a nation, the United States, and the state of Israel, um, and Obama, who saw himself as a bridge between the United States of America and what he called the Muslim world, which is a, is a, is a very uh, significant term. It's a latent term in the sense that it's taken from Islam itself, and it, it, it's predication on the notion that there actually is a, an Islamic world to which all Muslims uh, belong, and it can be addressed and accommodated, which is a revolutionary concept. Um, it, it, only three leaders, in, in, to my mind, in Western history have actually tried to make this type of address. One was Napoleon in 1798, Wilhelm II in 1898, and Barack Obama in 2009. And it, it was a revolutionary concept. I was fascinated by the Cairo speech, and it remained for me almost like a, a, a primer. I would go back to it as a foundational document. Every time I wanted to understand more about why the president was taking a certain policy or interacting with a certain leader in the Middle East in a certain way, I'd go back to the Cairo document and it would tell me much. It's more than twice as long as the first inaugural address. It, according to David Axelrod's memoirs, um, it was, it was an, a speech that, that the president had long thought about, had long wanted to give, and he gave it um, in June 2009. And it contains many components, um, everything from Islam as part of America's story, uh, to the similarities between American ideals and, and, and Islamic ideals, to the Palestinian issue, to uh, the question of democratization, uh, and then finally Iran and Iranian, and the question of Iranian nuclearization. Everything is in this speech, sort of an omnibus speech. Um, and what I, what I thought was unusual about it, here was the head of the United States of America addressing the adherents of a world faith from one of the centers of that world faith. And in, in my knowledge of American history, I couldn't think of anything parallel to it. Um, I thought it was unusual. I thought it was revolutionary. I call it revolutionary in the book. But for an Israeli, and an Israeli whose who's task, remember, I'm not, I'm not a pastoral, I'm not a casual observer here. I'm, I'm there to do a job. And my principal job was to never be surprised by the President of the United States. That speech is a guidebook. And this is what he's going to do. He's going to reach out to Islam. He's going to try to reconcile with Iran. He's going to put unprecedented pressure on Israel on the Palestinian issue because he said it. And the most difficult part of the speech, and here I'll end on a, on a positive note about the speech. The speech had, I watched, I talk in the book how I, how I listened to the speech in the Kiryah. Kiryah is Israel's Pentagon. And I was with a, a number of, of generals and we're listening to this speech and, and everybody's grimacing and, and, and cringing at various points in the speech, but there was one part of the speech that had everyone basically frozen solid. And that was when the president um, established the legitimacy of Israel. To his credit, he talked about Israel's legitimacy, but he based it on the Holocaust. And then, he, to make the, just to drive home the point, he skipped over Israel and went to Buchenwald, which was doubly problematic. Why is that a problem? Obviously, the Holocaust had a major role in Israel's creation. You know, we have Yad Vashem. Visitors to Israel will immediately go to Yad Vashem. But why? is basing Israel's raison d'etre on the Holocaust a deep problem for us. And not just for us, it's a problem in the peace process. It became a tactical problem. Why? To understand it, you have to go back to my penultimate book, Power, Faith, and Fantasy. 
I can plug it. It's now available at famously reduced prices on Amazon. Basically, they'll pay you to take it. Um, in February 1945, uh, Franklin Roosevelt meets with Ibn Saud, the founder of the Saudi uh, dynasty, and Roosevelt says to Ibn Saud, why don't you just accept Zionism? Why don't you let the Jews have a state in Palestine? And Ibn Saud says to Roosevelt, well, the Europeans killed a bunch of Jews. They didn't kill them all, so they took the survivors and they dumped them in Palestine. Why should I make peace with that, that country? It's not authentic. It's not indigenous. That's the Arab narrative of Israel. Once you take the Arab narrative and make it America's narrative, then try to negotiate a peace with a country that's, that's not indigenous and, and, and illegitimate from an Arab perspective. Now, to his credit, in November 2011, and from every point thereon, especially during his February, um, March 2013 visit to Israel, the president sought to walk that back. He understood that this was a problem. And if you, you start with the UN speech, November 2011, the president says, Israel is the Jewish state. It's the product of a 3,000 year Jewish connection to the land. And I think he manages to walk that back. But for me, that was the most difficult part of the Cairo speech. Interesting. I mean, uh, again, to keep going backwards <laughs> a little bit. Um, you talk about, you started out, or actually you started out doing many things, but you were an academic as well. And that was a hard world to be in. You talk about how large Edward Said's book, Orientalism, loomed in the academy. And you kind of get out and you write your books outside of the academy. You write these best-selling books that are, you take your it would case be very right difficult to, the to write them within the academy, actually. That's right. And so what I, and I've often thought of Power, Faith, and Fantasy, which is a terrific book, as being a sort of answer to Orientalism. But then I, what I, what I was sort of imagining as I was reading the book is that it's almost like in a horror movie where you feel like you've escaped and you get into the house and you lock the door and you turn around and the monster is behind you. So here you left academia, you took your case, to a large readership, you establish this notion that, in a sense, to be an ally of Israel is to be a greater American in some sense. And then you get the your brand job line. As, the, mm -hmm. as an ambassador, and in fact, the spirit of Orientalism, or Edward Said's book, which you mentioned, is there. And I guess my question is, what's the connection between the ivory tower and the White House? And how mm -hmm. much of an aberration would you say um, what, you, uh, what um, Obama articulated in that speech is, and how much is it the new dispensation that will continue on? It's an excellent question for me, because I, 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 I lived it and observed it, because I started, I'm gonna date myself, I went yeah, undergraduate, I studied Middle East studies in the 70s. Then I went to Israel, uh, served in the army, came back and did a, a PhD in the 80s, and then over the course of the next couple of decades, came back and taught at various universities. So I observed this process close on. In the 70s, uh, pre the publication of Orientalism, 1978, um, I would sit in classrooms with Palestinians and Syrians. I never felt that the, the, the study, it's gonna sound strange to some of you, it, it, I never felt that the classroom was politicized. I never encountered politics in the classroom. It's hard to imagine today. Then again, we used to drink wine and smoke cigars in the classroom too. Um, things were different back then. And, um, by the time I came back in the 80s, the politicization had, had come. It wasn't just Edwards. Edwards was not just cause, it was also symptom of things that were happening in American in academia. One of the processes that I, I, I suggest, I think in the book, is that the revolutions of 1968 
the revolutionaries, they took over the campuses, they tried to export those revolutions outside the campuses. They didn't quite succeed, so they went back into the campuses, locked the gates behind them, and transformed their departments into neo-Marxist departments. <laughs> and, um, and then generations of professors sort of perpetuated these ideas because you couldn't publish unless you had those ideas and you weren't gonna get tenure unless you had the idea. So that's, that's the, the university had these, had these um, concepts that were locked in. Now, by the time I came to Washington, this is now 2009, I saw how these ideas had moved out of the campus. People tend to come to Washington who are very, very talented. They come out of the best universities. I mean, the Obama administration has resumes that'll make your eyes want to water. Everyone's Harvard, Yale, Rhodes Scholar, everybody. Um, and I got to the point where I could have a conversation with somebody in the White House or the State Department, and just from their vocabulary, I could tell what professors they had and what books they'd read. I'm not kidding you. Because the way they spoke about the Middle East, we were talking about Middle Eastern issues. It, it was that obvious to me. And what had happened was that generations of young people who came out of these departments, um, Middle East, particularly Middle East studies, IR, international relations, political science, would go into government, and that's how you saw it move. Let me give you a very sort of, a rather, forgive me, a pedestrian example. Um, in 2008, I was a guest professor, a living professor at Harvard. I come out of my, my, my class one day, a bunch of my students come over and said, professor, professor, you've got to see this, this, this article that's up on the Kennedy School website called The Israel Lobby, by two very well-known uh, political scientists, Stephen Walt, John Mearsheimer, Walt Mearsheimer, The Israel Lobby. And it suggests that there's this sort of international cabal, which strangely enough included Howard Dean in the New, in the New York Times and Jimmy Carter. I couldn't think, it was, it was kind of wacko. Um, that, got, that, that, that forced America to act against its interests by supporting Israel, uh, alienated the Arab world, encouraged Islamic uh, terrorism against Americans, and this was generated by this notion of the Israel lobby. Now, when it came out, this was condemned. Now, Christopher Hitchens, you know, Oliver Shalom, who was no a great thinker but no great friend of Israel, basically said it was anti-Semitic. It was smelly, he said. People took their distance from it. Today, the term Israel lobby, you will find it on, in editorial pages of the New York Times. It's an accepted term. And I watched it move from 2006, in a very short period of time, 2006 to 2009, 10, go from, the, from something that is the unacceptable periphery into, into mainstream discourse. And you saw it happen. People use the Israel lobby all the time now. So there's an example. So let me ask you a question about all those great resumes that you talk about, the yes. um, amazing people in Washington. You keep encountering um, all of these American Jews who are very high up in the Obama administration. Very high. And it made me think that uh, Isaac Stern used to have this quip about Soviet-American cultural exchange. You know, we send them our Jewish violinists from Odessa and they send us their Jewish violinists from Odessa. Um, <laughs> and the, 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 the difference is that you're playing a different tune. You know, right. you've got your American counterparts and it's, uh. it's an amazing list. It's Rahm Emanuel, it's David Axelrod. Uh, it's Jack Lew, it's just, it's a long list. And I think what, what, what really struck me reading the book was that you seem to feel a sense of, I mean, tremendous uh, disappointment beyond the political. Mm -hmm. uh, and it extends to American Jewish journalists also. And I wish, I'd love for you to talk about that sense of disappointment, which for me seems to exist alongside of 
something very unusual, which is a feeling of uh, Jewish peoplehood that you seem to feel extends beyond, uh, that should bind everyone uh, of Jews together. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's wow. also a very unusual piece. Now of you're the touching book. on the nerve. See, this is the stuff I love. Everyone's focusing on the Obama Netanyahu part of this book, but I, I devoted a huge part of the book to our relationship, relationship between Israel and the Jewish people. And uh, I'm, I'm delighted for that opportunity. I'll just tell you about the, the joke went during the, the Russian Aliyah, the Russian immigration to Israel in 1989 to, to 1991, was what do you call a Russian immigrant with a violin without without a without a violin case? And the answer was a pianist. <laughs> same, the same joke with a different, yeah, exactly. sort of, sort of, a different sort of riff on it. And I also talk about in the book, yes, not only the names that you mentioned, but the depth to which Jews, American Jews, were involved in policymaking, not just in this administration, even the previous administration, but I think particularly in this administration, this was my point of reference, was, 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 was immense. And that in my discussion of the, the relationship between American Jewry and the state of Israel, I, I, I talked about how the founding fathers of Zionism and mothers did not anticipate the American Jewish success. It didn't fit into their, their Zionist Weltanschauung, which is that Jews couldn't make it in Europe, no matter how, how much they assimilated. Their, their model was Dreyfus. You could be the most assimilated army officer in the world, but you're gonna be, acu- you're gonna be accused of being a Jew at the end of the day. They could not foresee a situation that I encountered regularly, which is six Jews sitting in the White House, three Israelis, three American Jews discussing the Palestinian state. <coughs> Happened all the time. Very often the only, <laughs> the only Jewish person in the room would be the vice president or the president, the only non-Jewish person in the room. Jews were very, have, have, are, Jew, the, the American Jewish story is a huge success story, which, is, which, is, which doesn't fit into our, some of our, our, our deepest Zionist impulses and ideology. Um, having said that though, um, American Jews and American Jews, uh, particularly um, who are say non-Orthodox, who are, are would say to themselves more assimilated. Many of the Jews in the administration were intermarried. Um, would um, would have a hard time understanding the Israeli paradigm, where you have a nation state of the Jewish people, which is not it's it's not necessarily a religious state, but it's it, we have a, it's predicated on the notion that there is a Jewish people. And that irrespective of where you live, whether you're living in Washington, D.C. or you're living in Hadera in Israel, we belong to the same people and we should have some type of affinity and a better sense of understanding of one another. And, um, and that we, I didn't always encounter. It was extremely difficult. Just, I'm going to give you some very specific examples. Um, there were uh, main sort of center to leftist American Jewish groups. The, the one that's best known is perhaps J Street. Who called for a two-state solution? I personally supported a two-state solution. I still support a two-state solution. But beyond that, understand what you mean by a two-state solution. The American Jewish experience, which was very different than the Israeli Jewish, Israeli experience, the American Jewish experience in the background was the civil rights movement, Selma, um, the struggle for equality for American Jews. Our experience in the last, certainly the last 15 years was withdrawing from southern Lebanon, withdrawing from Gaza, and getting hit by thousands and thousands of rockets. Entering an Oslo peace process with the PLO and getting a thousand Israelis blown up by suicide bombers. So try to explain to an American, a liberal American Jewish audience that when you say, it's like that line, what do we say, what do we say, what are we, what are we talking about when we talk about Anne Frank? What are we talking about when we talk about a two-state solution? We're talking about uh, creating a state 
which could easily fill up with 100,000 rockets, the way southern Lebanon filled up, the way Gaza filled up, and would be with not just rocket range, would be in, within rifle range of our schools and our hospitals and our major cities. Understand that when you talk about a two-state solution, you're talking about creating a state, which a Palestinian state, which has no national institutions, no economy, and a corrupt, unelected leadership. And states like that in the Middle East today last, let's say, about two weeks, and will fall to Hamas at best and ISIS at worst. What does it mean? Yes, it's important as a matter of diplomacy. We support a two-state solution. But in reality, because we're living different right now, to impart Israel's reality to American Jews who have never had rockets fall on their house, who have never taken a kid in the morning to a school bus on a bus and not knowing if that kid's going to get to school because the bus may blow up, is a very difficult challenge. It's a very difficult challenge. And I, and I, I, re, I return to it all the time. One of the speeches I always give to American Jewish audiences, audiences was, what do we need to understand about one another and what do we need to expect of one another? And I hope to get that conversation going. The book is a continuation of that. The, the chapter about our relationship with American Jews is the mo was the hardest chapter to write, Jonathan. It's an, ang it's an anguish chapter. And the anguish is what is so stirring about it because it would be, you don't dismiss people who disagree with you politically. It's not that you want to save their souls, but you feel somehow that they ought to be connected to, you know, Judaism doesn't have the body of Christ analogy, but as that's why I thought the memoir Maybe we should pick that of, one up. Well, I was going to say, the I, fact <laughs> that it's a memoir, it's your body, you know? This is what I wanted. I, 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 I end this chapter, and I want to just, just, you know, preempt the book for anybody here, but... Uh, There's lots in it. Look at all my post-its. Um, I end it with a plea. There's one thing we, could, we should be agreeing on. One thing. We can disagree about the peace process. We can disagree about relations between Obama and Netanyahu. We can disagree about the Iranian nuclear program even. That's a difficult one for me. The most important thing we should agree on is to realize that we live in a completely unique moment of Jewish history. A moment when there are two great Jewish communities that are strong and vibrant and creative and immensely successful, that every Jew in the, in the world today is free. Think about that. When we were kids, there were millions of Jews who weren't free. Think of where we're living. Think that we, Jews six years in the White House talking about the Palestinian state. It's an extraordinary moment. And there's one thing that we demand of one another, and, I, and on this I, I will not compromise. We should all be deeply, profoundly, endlessly grateful Grateful. That's it. <laughs> so you have this very large sense of peoplehood, but uh, I guess there's this, I keep telling jokes for some reason, but my father loved this Jewish joke about these two Jews in front of a firing squad. What could be funnier I, than that? I know this joke. Right, so one oh, of them This joke influenced my whole life. One of them refuses the blindfold, <laughs> and the other one turns to him in panic and says, don't make trouble. We're in enough trouble. We're in enough trouble as it is. Exactly. So I guess, I guess the question, segueing towards some of the other elements that we need to talk about is, do you feel like a Jewish troublemaker? Did you think that that would be the role you were partly cast in? But I also would want to ask, do you feel like someone who has refused the blindfold, and then what is the blindfold? You're entirely too smart. <laughs> I knew I made a mistake by asking you to do this. Well, but it's, it's, it's for you, can I? It's, that, that is, that, it, just, it just hit me. That is exactly what this book is about. Well, I read refusal it. to take the blindfold. Okay, we have a, let's, let's talk as they say in, 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 
ancient Israeli Yiddish tachlis. The tachlis is we are at a very tough juncture. We have an administration that wants an agreement with Iran. Um, I'm not a spokesman for the state of Israel. Um, I'm not a spokesman for the prime minister. I'm not an ambassador anymore. I'm a member of Knesset. But I'll tell you that in Knesset, where we have a multi-party system, where we agree on absolutely nothing and we scream about everything, one of the few things that just about everybody, I can't think of anybody that does, everybody agrees on is that this deal is emphatically bad and dangerous for us. Just everyone agrees on it. Now, there are certain people in the country, in this country who say, we're in enough trouble as it is. Don't make, don't make, don't make waves. And this book is, is about saying no. This is precisely the time to make waves. Because for who knows, two weeks from now, we may not have the opportunity to make waves. And if we don't make our case, and I think it's not only our right, but it's our duty to make that case. And we can make that case, as I hope I've made it in this book, not out of anger, but out of love. Because the book opens with love for America and love for the Jewish people and respect for its institutions and saluting the rank. Um, if we can make that case, then perhaps we can stave off another catastrophe. And I think that, that along with that joke, which really haunted me as a kid, you laughed at it, but that joke always haunted me, is the notion that there were moments like this in American Jewish history where American Jewry had an opportunity to intercede and perhaps save millions of Jews. And that moment was lost. I grew up in the shadow of that guilt and bore it. And it guides me. I don't think every moment is 1938. Don't get me wrong. I don't necessarily think the Iranians are Nazis. But I have no doubt that given the opportunity, they will wipe us off the map. Because they say it. And they're trying to do it. And we'd be idiots not to think so. That's why. I, well, let me ask a follow-up question, because I would love for you to help me understand something. You were powerfully persuasive on what you were just discussing, of course, and not only on the threat and the danger of the Iranian nuclear project, mm. but also the fact that American Jews are, you know, you're saying iceberg, iceberg, and other people are unionizing the waiters on the Titanic or whatever, whatever <laughs> noble but uh, non-apocalyptically oriented activity people are yeah. engaging. But then, about two-thirds of the way through your book, all of a sudden, the former head of the Mossad, the former head of the Shimbet, uh, the former head of the IDF, uh, uh, Summer Ehud the Ehud Barak, who has been, who's the defense minister of Bibi Netanyahu and who has been his staunch supporter uh, on this matter of the small shrinking window, all of a sudden, some of them are calling Netanyahu messianic, and Ehud Barak suddenly says, never mind, essentially, or in some sense. And I don't understand, I, want, I don't understand that, and I'm also curious how it's possible to expect the United States to cross the American-Israel divide. Is there an Israel-Israel divide as well? These are not fringe people. They are, Very they are central. So help me. And I talk about the torment of that debate and the, and the, the agonies of the summer of 2012. Jonathan's talking about the possibility that Israel would launch a preemptive strike against the Iranian uh, nuclear facilities in the summer of 2012. And that was a, a very, very tense period for us. And in Israel, it triggered a, a bitter debate between some of, the, some of the leading lights of Israel's security um, uh, establishment, the former heads of the Mossad, the former heads of, the, of our FBI, the Shin Bet, um, former chief of staff, uh, against the prime minister who, and, and initially the defense minister who were seemingly to, 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 were, were in favor of this strike. 
And I go into depth in this debate and what it looked like from the perspective of Washington. I didn't have all the information and I didn't pretend to have all the information, particularly not the operational information. But what changed the debate was interesting. When did the debate end? The debate was about whether we could trust the United States of America to act militarily if it, if it came down to it. And their administration's official position was the president's not bluffing. Uh, all options are on the table. And the, the opponents of the Israeli preemptive strike camp were saying, if we can't trust the president, who can we trust in the world? And then something happened in September of 2013. Remember what happened? Ancient history. What happened was the Syrian red line. And the president had said that he's going to force the red line, force the red line, and then didn't. And from that instant, the debate in Israel ended. And it has not been heard of since that time. So it brought back into the fold the people who were the Israeli critics. It ranged. Other, listen, there are other very difficult questions to deal with. Um, the Iranian nuclear program is far from the only threat we face. It, our problem is not just, would not just be D-Day, but D-Day plus one, D-Day plus two. An Iranian proxy organization called Hezbollah has aimed 100,000 rockets at our homes and neighborhoods. That's more rockets than NATO has combined. And the question is, if Israel were ever to do anything against Iran, how is Hezbollah act? Would we have not just enough Iron Dome rockets, but we have a diplomatic Iron Dome. Because um, many, tens of thousands of these rockets in Lebanon are dug in underground, they're in homes. Because Hezbollah wants us to kill the families because they know we'll be delegitimized. They know it, they know it very well. They know how to use the press. There's a whole section on the press and how, how the presidents, how, how the, the terrorists, how they manipulate the press. This is it. So the, the, these are very weighty questions. Very difficult questions. So it's not just now about our relationship with the United States in terms of uh, the Iranian nuclear program, it's whether we could count on the United States to give us Iron Dome, military and diplomatic and otherwise. Which you think is an open question at this point, you mean? Well, we had last summer as an example. And uh, last summer we were engaged in a, a brutal war with Hamas. Hamas fired 4,500 rockets and mortars at our country. By the way, uh, Dad, my father's a World War II veteran. That's well over twice the number of V1 and V2 rockets that were fired by Nazi Germany at Great Britain and during the whole course of World War II. Okay, this was in 50 days. And, um, and the administration came out and said that Israel has a right to defend itself, but then was, was uh, openly critical and sometimes um, um, stridently critical of the way we conducted the campaign, uh, accused us of not taking sufficient precautions to prevent harming Palestinian civilians who were being used as a civilian shield uh, by Hamas. And there was a question of closing of the Ben-Gurion airport, which the administration explained was according to a um, FAA regulation, but ask any Israelis, they don't believe that, they think it was punitive. And there was a question of the resupply of vital types of, 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 uh, of ammunition to the IDF. These were front page news items in Israel. And it raised questions about what happens if we get into a war that's not 50 days long, but is a half a year long. And not against Hamas, but against Hezbollah. Because we know we can't take out the rockets from the air. It involves troops on the ground. It means going from all those villages, house to house to house. And that's going to be a very complex and costly operation. Can we rely on our ally to back us on that? And to me, that's a, it's a, it's a very pressing question. 
Well, I, I have just, I, mean, I have a lot more questions, but I, we have, there are a lot of questions from the audience. So I, I do want to ask if there's, if you're, you, you um, brought this book out quicker than you thought you might, and I'm wondering if there is something inside this window you are hoping people will be able to do, or is it all about taking off the blindfold and simply knowing and participating with greater knowledge and what's at stake? Well, uh, optimally, obviously, I would like to get a conversation started. And um, one, of the, one of the less pleasant experiences of my tenure as ambassador was dealing with American political polarization. Everything falls into the, you know, the rubric of pro, anti, Republican, Democrat. Um, and can we have a conversation? Uh, among one another, um, as Israelis and Americans, as Israelis and American Jews, about uh, these faithful junctures and how we're going to traverse them in a way that, that I, I believe is benefit for, beneficial for all of them. I, I, believe that it, I believe that the Iranian nuclear deal ultimately is as much a threat to the United States as it is to, to Israel, because it, it means the end of nonproliferation, certainly beginning in the Middle East, but then moving beyond the Middle East. Uh, if Iran gets military nuclear capabilities, then, then who's not going to get military nuclear capabilities? And we're talking about a breakout of one year. It's nothing. It's nothing. Um, so that's, that's my hope. So, I mean, the minimal requirement is, yes, I'm taking off the blindfold. But the, 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 the long-range goal would be to motivate, animate, inspire uh, my readers to do more than just stand there but to be involved and to make their voices heard. Even though, even though at the end of the day, even though at the end of the day, it may not work, but I, the hope is that it would. That's great. So, thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, does the publication of this book foreclose your chance to ever serve as foreign minister? No, <laughs> I don't think so. It's a, it's, a, it's a book about, uh, right now I'm trying to focus on being a member of Knesset and doing that a good job. And by the way, Knesset is fascinating. I, I, I want to talk about Knesset for a second if you give me a, a break. Uh, and I'll talk about what it is to be in Knesset. Because uh, I've learned out, living in Israel for about 40 years now, that um, you know, being in the army for all those years, serving as ambassador, serving in various governments, I thought I knew this country. I didn't know anything until I got into the Knesset. Knesset is just fascinating, fascinating. Um, the other day, uh, on a Thursday, I went to a, a Knesset, what they, what, what's, in, what's in Knesset called a lobby, but in, in, Israel, in the United States it's called a caucus. You can't use the word caucus because that's the Hebrew word for coconut. <laughs> going to a caucus. What, what are you going to... With the coconut, um, it was it was a multi part multi partisan session with representatives from just across the board, right, left, center, up, down. Several hundred transgender kids, maybe a hundred, maybe I'm exaggerating, hundred transgender kids in a room, and the discussion was about educating young Israelis about the challenges of transgenderism in, in teenagers. And they had some of these transgender kids getting up and talking about their problems. People were crying. This was no joke. It was deeply moving and troubling. But I thought there were two extraordinary things going on in this room. One was that this discussion was occurring a two-hour drive from ISIS, where people were getting their heads cut off because of what they believe. And the second extraordinary thing was that I was the only one in the room that thought that was extraordinary. 
So everyone else is thinking, yeah, of course we're in the Knesset having a discussion like this. Why wouldn't we? Because it's the Knesset. This is Israel. Does this foreclose my ability to be foreign minister? No, on the contrary, I think, it, I think, it, I think it's showing that I, I care deeply about our foreign relations. I care about our most important alliance, the Alliance of the United States. The whole book is a cry to, to restore this alliance after this alliance has taken some incredible bumps over the last five years. That's what it's about. The last, I guess, the last five, six pages um, lays out a blueprint of how we can move from here and get to a better place. And stick with the book to the end. You get the prescription. <laughs> Plus, you wrote your way into the job of ambassador. I think that's got to be rare. I mean, Netanyahu didn't really know you, but he'd read Power, Faith, yes. and Fantasy. It's, it's unusual that you literally write your way into, it's a very Jewish thing to do, into history. <laughs> um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to pick out the short ones because I'm such a slow reader. I'm just impressed that you can read these things. <laughs> I can't. Yes, next time we'll send a little I talk a lot about my dyslexia in the book. Uh, what it is to be a, a learning disabled kid and having to deal with this throughout, that it's, it's sort of a, a motif throughout the whole book, uh, and I couldn't read that. So here's a short one. Who is better for Israel, Hillary or Jeb? Oh, God. <laughs> they're both wonderful. Actually, I do not know. Uh, they're both wonderful. I think that uh, I, I, it's not a fair question in the sense that I have never met Jeb Bush, but I worked extensively with Hillary. So it's just not, it's not fair. So I don't want to say anything against Jeb. I don't know him. I worked a lot with Hillary Clinton. She's a very formidable person, a very formidable intellect, and um, understands us well. She is a Democrat. She is, she is liberal. If, if, she, if she wins, we're going to have to, you know, we're going to I would hope that we would adjust our policies accordingly. I have very strong feelings about the peace process. Uh, a couple months ago, I wrote a, an op-ed piece for the Wall Street Journal called The Two-State Situation. And that was, it says you can't get rid of a two-state solution now, but we have a two-state situation de facto in the West Bank. Let's work to make it better. And let's limit where we build our settlements. That was the most controversial thing. Let's limit it to the, uh, to the, to the, to the settlement blocks. Those areas that we all know are going to be part of a Jewish state. Should we ever have a two-state solution? Whenever. It doesn't matter. But let's limit it. I think we'd have to adopt that type of party policy if uh, she were to be elected and to get into a different uh, place with her. Why do this, I guess, is connected. Why do you think Jews keep voting Democratic when clearly it is not in the best interest of Israel? I, I don't, I don't. Oh. First of all, it's the, it's the best interest of Israel that Jews keep voting and be involved politically. Um, what's interesting is that, and, and I think I can speak, I have a very large family in this country. I was the only one who made Aliyah in my whole family. And, um, and, and I think pretty much, speaking of my family, they voted Democratic. And, and it was very interesting to listen to them. Why? Because they all love Israel. They care about me. They care about you know, our family. But American Jews have other items on their agenda. One of the principal concerns was the composition of the Supreme Court. It came up again and again in my family. So, so Jewish. Uh, to care about law, to care about the Constitution. Um, so I, I, against their interests, I, I, I would hope that, uh, that, that, you know, that we can work together, Israeli and American Jews, um, so that care for Israel, first of all, should be a, a close to a paramount concern for American Jews. But, but above all, support for Israel must remain a bipartisan issue in this country. Must. Um, I, you know, this book is critical uh, of the administration. It is. And I, I had to tell the truth on that. But do not, do not derive the, the conclusion from that that I'm against bipartisanship. And I, I come back to that theme all the time in the book. 
that you can be critical of the president, you can be critical of a party, you can be critical of my own prime minister. There's lots of criticism of, of Netanyahu in there, and there's criticism of me. But that should never, that, that support for Israel should become the monopoly of one party, I think would be disastrous for us. Um, here's a question. With the Syrian conflict, how will the Druze be sheltered by Israel from Assad, Hezbollah, and ISIS? Okay, we, we are getting into a little bit of a classified area. Um, no kidding, I, I'm on the Knesset uh, Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee and we've had extensive briefings about this, uh, so I don't want to go into this publicly. Um, we have, uh, the Druze of Israel are a cherished and revered uh, population. They have since 1956 volunteered to be drafted. So it's very unusual. Um, recently and conspicuously, Israel um, removed its, its exclusively Druze unit from the army, which existed since, oh God, for, for decades. Why? Because the Druze are so integrated into the army. We have Druze pilots today. We have Druze commandos, Druze in Sayyid Matkal. Um, one of my most beloved commanders is a Druze. We're still very good friends. So um, we have a commitment uh, to the Druze, and we care very much about what's happening uh, to the Druze communities that are increasingly threatened on the other side of the border in Syria. And let's leave it at that. Uh, what Israeli policies, this is a very interestingly formulated question, what Israeli policies should be reformed to combat the BDS movement on American college campuses? Great question. Right now, Israel spends less on the struggle against BDS, boycott, divestment, sanctions, the, the effort to delegitimize de 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 Israel in the world, spends less on that effort than it spends on a platoon of tanks or on a single F-15 plane. And yet, if we are delegitimized, if, if, if we are denied the right to defend ourselves, then the tanks won't be able to move and the planes won't be able to take off. So first thing, the first policy decision we have to make is to begin to allocate sufficient resources to train uh, the appropriate personnel who can deal with BDS, because you can fight it. I've, been, um, uh, I've had the honor over the last year plus to work with uh, a number of members of Congress, particularly with Peter Roskam, uh, of Illinois and passing the, the first anti-BDS legislation um, in, in Congress. It's gonna be coming up for some important votes coming. You can fight back, there are ways you can fight back, but you gotta have, you gotta have resources. And I think it would also help. BDS is not about the territories. It's not about settlements. You can take about all the settlements, it's gonna have BDS. BDS is not about the, the outcome of the 67 war, it's about the outcome of the 1948 war. Um, but BDS uses settlements and our, and our policies toward the Palestinians as a tool. I, I've seen BDS websites where they'll call to a Jewish young people, join us. If you don't like settlements, join us. Fight, fight, fight against you know, the apartheid state. And then you look at who's sponsoring the website and you'll see these are, these are organizations that don't oppose settlements, they oppose Israel's existence. So if we move ahead in a way that I've suggested on the two-state situation, I think it would also help us on the BDS. There's a diplomatic response too. Well, that's interesting. So you do think then Israeli policies in regard to the settlements are affecting BDS, even though BDS does not arise, as you say, from They do not, but they make some, sometimes, sometimes they make BDS's work easier for them, is what right. I want to say. Uh, another BDS question, which is interesting, because in a sense it's connected to your because a lot of it takes place on campuses, your, mm -hmm. your experience in academia. Aside from your books, which are obviously essential, uh, what are your top three recommended books on Israel and the Middle East? 
the siege. All right. My Connor Cruz O'Brien. It's unfortunately it's you know came out in the eighties, but it's one. It, here it's written by an Irishman. Um, just a fantastic book, like an essential book on Israel. You agree with me on this one? It's just, yes, it's, it's a, a great, it's a book. terrific book. And I wish you know, I wish you were around still, and he could he could put out another edition of it. Uh, terrific book. Um, an essential book on Israel um, for me um, was there's the Nita Shapira book called Israel. It's like a textbook, and I, I was given it to read to review one time, and I dreaded. It. I was on an airplane. I said, "Oh God, I got to read this whole book." Turns out I, I never slept on the airplane. It was such a good book, and it's put out with the, with the assistance of the Schusterman Foundation, and I strongly recommend it. Um, and. Uh, uh, let's, let's take it down to a personal sort of uh, a memoir book that um, that I so much uh, that I so much appreciated and loved. Let me think, because uh, there are so many wonderful books about Israel. Um, a Tale of Love and Darkness, Almasos, <laughs> a novel uh, that's a, a passionate, in a way, pro-Israel story about the War of Independence period. And nobody asked me, but I would throw in Yossi Klein Halevi's. Oh, oh I definitely. Yossi, please, thank you. I don't give. Yossi Klein Halevi, Light Dreamers, please. Um, I lost it, but somebody, yes, here we go. It'll, it, they're asking you to clarify. An article in the foreword claimed you falsely accused the New York Times with regard to an op-ed published by Abbas. Close reading of Abbas's piece substantiates your claim, but... Can you clarify it for the audience? You may have to also tell them about it. Oh, so this is, I think this is May of 2010. Abbas published an op-ed in the New York Times. And it comes in the book in the discussion about my relationship with the press. And the, the article is very important diplomatically because it's, it's the point where Abbas comes out and says that he's now going to move the conflict with Israel from the diplomatic arena into, a, into the legal arena. It's where he announces he's going to move toward the internet, he's going to move to the General Assembly, the Security Council, declare Palestine independently of negotiations, which is a violation of, of the PLO's commitments under the Oslo Accords. It's, it's a violation of, of, of Mahmoud Abbas's commitments to the United States, which is a co-signatory to those agreements. And then he's going to sue Israel in the International Criminal Court as a an illegal occupier of a member state of the UN. That is, that is, this is a tact, this is a strategic threat to the state of Israel. It's about sanctions. All right. But the argument around this extraordinary declaration talks about the creation of Israel and the creation of the Palestine-Israel conflict. And he says in 1947, the UN uh, decided on partition and then uh, a war sort of broke out, and then Arab armies, then the Zionists began to kick out Palestinian Arabs, and then the Z then Arab armies invaded to save the Palestinians. And he also mentions that his family was kicked out of Tzfat. So, first of all, everybody who knows history knows that on November 29th, 1947, there was a partition resolution, Resolution 181, in the General Assembly. The Zionists accepted, and the Arabs rejected it. And they declared war against it. And yes, there were a number of Palestinian Arabs who were removed by the IDF during the course of the War of Independence, but they were removed after the Arab armies invaded, not before. And Mahmoud Abbas himself and his family left Sfat, Safed, a year before the war broke out. He was never kicked out. He actually says it in his own memoirs. 
So the book relates how I called the, op, the editor of the op-ed uh, section of the New York Times, and we've had terrible problems with them. They, they just kept on running one virulent article after another. My, my favorite was pinkwashing. Israel is one of the world's leader in gay rights, um, but the, the article by an obscure professor from Staten Island claimed that the only reason we're good on gay rights is so that we can pinkwash, so that we can oppress the Palestinians. This was loony, lunacy. I couldn't respond to it. Long-range plan. Long-range plan, okay. Now, now we're rubble-washing, by the way. We're sending aid to Nepal, all right? Rubble-washing. My wife is involved in ISRAID. It's a wonderful organization that extends uh, Israeli aid to the victims of natural disasters all over the world. She's been in the Philippines. She's been in Japan. She's been in Jordan to help refugees, that's rubble washing cause, so, we can, uh, so we can greater oppress the Palestinians. This is the kind of lunacy I have to deal with the op-ed pages. So um, I called the op-ed editor and um, the story is that uh, I said, we have to have a response to this. You, you, you fact check me, every period and comma I write, you fact check. Didn't anybody ever look at Mahmoud Abbas's memoirs and see that he wasn't kicked out? in 1948 that his family left before? Does anybody look at what's in the partition resolution, what the Arabs were? No, no, no. So I said, let me have, let, give me a chance. The only, let me get you an op-ed from Shimon Peres, the president. He was there, he saw this happen. He was Ben Gurion's assistant in 1947, 1948. And the editor said, well, we already have an op-ed from uh, this member of Knesset who was a very right-wing member of Knesset. It's fine, you can be a right-wing member of Knesset, but I got the sense that the op-ed page wanted him to write the op-ed to show how Israel was so right-wing. I said, give me 24 hours. I'll get an op-ed from Shimon Peres. So our son was graduating uh, from Columbia that day and I had a very nice seat next to the alma mater statue and I spent the entire time with a Blackberry going back and forth with Shimon Peres typing out this op-ed. Tried doing 800 words on our Blackberry, back and forth with Shimon Peres. Hit the send button in time to make the deadline and the next day the New York Times printed the op-ed by the right-wing MK like that? So that's the story. It's in the book. There's more. <laughs> I don't know how we are for time. I, I, I'm going to shame. I'm having fun. I'm going to shamelessly ask you another question. Please, shame. I was going to just pretend I was reading it, but I, I, I'm not. And then I have one more. I won't be able to read it. Yeah. So. Um, it seems like part of your argument is, is that this is a real, this last administration was a real break and that traditionally there was this intense alliance. Yes. But partly from having read your histories, I was thinking back through various administrations. And in every administration, in every generation, there was a kind of existential crisis in which it seemed there was not only daylight between the United States and Israel, but more than daylight. I mean, Eisenhower made, not, didn't just make Israel get out of the Sinai, but he said- Threatened us with sanctions. Right, and referred to Israel as an imperialist power along with England and France, and said, but America will have your back if the Straits of Tehran are blocked. And then when that happens 10 years later, Johnson doesn't have America's back because he's busy with the- Vietnam War. The Vietnam War. And Reagan, Reagan denounced the bombing of the Osirak reactor in very strong terms. And mm. the list just goes on. And I'm wondering if, is it, is the, is the American-Israel alliance, is it like the Judeo-Christian tradition, which is a phrase that is partly um, imaginary and that everyone keeps alive because by talking about it, it will appear to be alive, but that is, needs to be kind of spoken into existence. Uh, Abracadabra. Every, Abracadabra. Every administration. Or is there something, is Obama, in, as you describe him, different in kind 
or just in intensity? Okay, I thank you for that question because there's been a lot of um, lack of clarity about my position on this. And I'm, I'm very, and, and question, like some of them questioning my historical, uh, historic uh, bona fides here. Here is how it worked. Hmm? No, 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 go answer. That wasn't the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah, it was, it was, it was, go. Oh, you wouldn't question it. Right, no, no, but no, I'm just, not. yeah, yeah. But I, I, I welcome yeah. the question. It gives yeah. me a chance to clarify. Listen, Israel's been around for 67 years. And the United States has had close relations with Israel, but it, the, the alliance as it exists today didn't, it, it didn't emerge till the seventh day of the Six-Day War. Israel fought the Six-Day War with, all, with French ammunition, not a single American bullet. It was only when Lyndon Johnson woke up on the 12th of June and said, well, there's a superpower out there. Uh, we should be aligned with that superpower. Uh, that, 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 that the strategic relationship began, and even then it took a long time. Uh, Reagan, you're absolutely right, condemned the Osiric uh, nuclear reactor attack in 1981. But starting in the mid-'80s, um, a new relationship emerged. And uh, that, uh, and Reagan laid the foundations for it. And it, uh, it solidified over the course of certainly the Clinton years and then into the, the, the George Bush years, we're talking about 16 years of presidency. And the, the, the relationship was based on two principles. And I, this, is, this was the briefing I got, the sense I got any briefing uh, on how it was to be ambassador. These two principles were sacrosanct. No surprises and no daylight. It doesn't mean that sometimes they weren't honored in the breach and we didn't surprise one another. And the biggest surprise that Israel pulled during the Bush years was of trying to sell uh, armaments to China. And it was terrible, terrible thing. But Bush, to his credit, tried to keep it as much under the, under the surface as possible. The Obama administration came into office in 2009 and made a policy decision to depart from these two principles. And you know we can argue the, the details of it, but from my perspective of ambassador, this was reality. The Cairo speech, we've talked about it. For Israel, almost every aspect of that speech was deeply important, whether it be the Iranian nuclear program, the Palestinian-Israel issue, um, Islamic radicalism, all these things are important. Under the principle of uh, no surprises, whenever the United States made a major policy statement on Middle East issues, Israel always received an advanced copy, and we had a chance to look it over and to submit our, our comments on it. No one talked to us about the Cairo speech. Um, May 19th, 2011, um, we heard that the president's going to give a major speech on the Arab Spring. I was in the White House the previous day. I was assured that that speech would not deal with Israel-Palestinian issues. And most of the speech dealt with Palestinian issues. We were not informed. That surprises. Um, and no daylight. And the president actually was quoted saying, we need daylight between Israel and the United States because when there's daylight, Israel doesn't move. It, it, empirically, it was, it, was, it, was, it was a false comparison because when there, was, when there was no daylight under Bush, Israel both withdrew from Gaza and made a full pledge, full offer of Palestinian statehood to Mahmoud Abbas, which he turned down. But okay, let's not argue the history of it. These were policy decisions that have informed American position, policies toward Israel since then, since then. Does that mean that Israel didn't make mistakes? We made some big mistakes. Talk about it in the book. And in fact, most recently, last March, the prime minister surprised the president by showing up in, uh, in Congress right, in front of the Trump without, without telling him. And that, and that was, the, to my right, was, was the result of many years of the breakdown of these core principles. 
And what I say, what I've said recently in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, what I say in this book, it's very important that we restore these two principles. They are the foundations of this alliance. No daylight, no surprise. We can disagree. We're going to disagree. We're going to disagree a lot. But to understand that for Israel, there is no substitute for the United States of America as our ally. As I said, it's not just the military Iron Dome, it's the diplomatic Iron Dome. We stand for the same principles. We're facing the same allies, same enemies. And for the United States, there's no alternative to Israel. Um, I want to depress you all, but the number of democracies in the world is going down every year. And Israel belongs to a very small group of democracies that has never known a second of non-democratic rule. Not a second. We belong up there with Canada and Australia, the United States. We are militarily and scientifically uh, robust. We have an army that's more than twice the size of the French and British army to combined. They're getting smaller. And we are strategically located in a way that the United States doesn't have to keep forces around Israel. Doesn't have to keep a fleet there anymore. We, we take care of them. So the United States doesn't really have a lot of substitutes for Israel either. We're in it together. <laughs> like or not, we're in it together. We we're going to disagree about a couple of things. So let's observe these two principles. And uh, they are essential, I think, not just for the interests of the United States and Israel, they're essential for what remains of the stability in the Middle East, and I think they are crucial for the world. And I think that's a great spot to let you end on. I could go on and on and on. Well, we can go on, but, but I... I, I uh, we have 15 more minutes. Oh, do we? No, no. Four they had nine. told me to end now, and I want to make sure people have a chance to get books, but I got more questions, and... Where is the person who's telling me what to do? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, do you want me to keep going? <laughs> Go on. One last question. Okay. Well, do you want audience? I don't know. Um, no, I have a last audience question that I can read. I saved someone with very neat handwriting for the end. Um, so it's a, in a sense, it follows from what you were saying. Looking ahead, has President Obama changed U.S. policy to a point that cannot be changed into one that's more pro-Israel? And if so, does it mean APEC and other organizations have lost their influence? And if so, what can, should be done? So I want, first of all, I want to correct this notion that, is, that, the, that the Obama's policies are, are anti-Israel. They're not. The president is not anti-Israel. I, can't, I, emphasize, I emphasize this repeatedly in the book. And uh, he, has a, he, 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 he feels attached to a certain Israel. I think it's often a mythic Israel, a pre-67 Israel, which didn't exist. Israel is actually much more democratic and open today than it ever was in 1967. Um, and he doesn't, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't connect with the, the Israel of the settlements or the Israel of the Likud. Uh, he says this. I'm not putting words in his mouth. He has said this. Um, and th these are integral parts of Israel. And Likud has been in office for a long time now. Um, but um, the, 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 the policies that can change, um, we would hope, and here I'm speaking in the, the collective we, because I'm, I'm not speaking for a party, I think I'm speaking for, for the vast majority of Israelis, would be a policy that would understand the dilemmas we face vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians. Because, listen, it put it in, 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 in the simplest way. By creating a Palestinian state, we face existential threats. By not creating a Palestinian state, we face existential threats. Understand that. Two, understand that we live in a just horrible neighborhood. In, in the book, I write about growing up as the only Jewish kid in a, in a non-Jewish working class neighborhood and how I had to fight anti-Semites every day. I, I know what it is to live in a tough neighborhood. Believe me, my neighborhood looks like Eden 
compared to the, uh, to the Middle East. And understand what I talked about earlier, what Israelis have endured. Not, you know, you know uh, tired, are you tired after two Middle Eastern wars that most of you didn't fight in, that took a place that only a fraction of the population of the United States took part in? Tired? I'd go through about 10 of these wars every two years. Have rockets fallen on your house. Have buses gone off. Lose a close family member like Sally and I did to a bus bombing. Have your kid wounded in battle like our kid was wounded in battle. Understand what we live through. We are a normal society living in profoundly abnormal circumstances. Understand that. Understand that. We saw what happened when horrible things happened with the Boston bombers, how Americans react. We live through this stuff every, all the time. We're in that type of trauma. We had a young person shot to death yesterday by a terrorist. Another, a, 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 a policeman mortally stabbed in Jerusalem today. It was every day. So understand that. Understand why the immense majority of Israelis view this, view this deal with Iran as a bad deal and as dangerous for us. Understand it. Engage with us. Is, am I asking too much here? <laughs> All right. This is, this is, it's kind of a plea. The whole book is a plea. It's a cri de cour. It's a, it's a plea for understanding and for, and for prudence. At one point at the end of the book, I, 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 have the, I have a word which is a very tough word. I said, stop. Enough. Enough of all this ad hominem attacks. I talk about how I spent 24 hours on Israeli television trying to find the Hebrew equivalent of the word chicken shit. Yes, I meant to ask you, what is it? There is none. Uh, Israeli, wait, chicken shit? What, what does that mean? It doesn't quite mean the same thing in Hebrew. I told you, we don't have a lot of curse words in Hebrew. Moses never said chicken shit. So, um, enough. Stop it already. We, we are, we are, our alliance is too precious to be treated in this way. Does someone has a question. What? Why does he want the deal? What is the motivation for, if it is? It was an important part of my academic background to always understand the other side well enough to argue it. I could be up here and argue the Palestinian case very forcefully. Um, and I can argue the pro-Iran deal forcefully. But at the end of the day, it's predicated on certain beliefs that, uh, that Israel, A, doesn't share nor can afford to share. I mean, the short of it is, uh, and I've heard this many times, um, you can't stop the program, you can't, you, you, can't take, you can't take away knowledge, you can't bomb knowledge. Um, the sanctions won't hold together for, forever, and even during the sanctions, the program has gone from 6,000 centrifuges to 19,000 centrifuges, and that this deal will have intrusive inspections it will reduce the breakout time. That's the time that Iran can you know, break out and create a bomb in a year. And, um, and a lot of things can happen in a decade. Right. And that, and, pardon me? Well, that's, well, I'll get to that in a second. So, um, and that, um, and that, and I'm basing now on, 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 I'm not putting words in the president's mouth. He's said this, that, that Iran, if it's engaged in this way, can, can, can become a regional, a, 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 a positive regional actor. Um, it can actually work for reconciliation between Sunnis and Shiites. I, I'm, 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 it's all there. Um, and that's the argument. Israel's argument is as follows. Um, that Iran has systematically lied about its nuclear program, 
it, agree, it, it agrees to this deal, it, it's probably going to be building somewhere else. Israel, it retains all of its nuclear infrastructure. Nothing gets dismantled. There are a lot of centrifuges that are unplugged, but they could be replugged. Meanwhile, the research on more advanced centrifuges that will enrich four, maybe five times as fast will, will continue, and that will reduce the breakout time significantly. And Iran won't break out. They will sneak out. They will do it in small increments, in neither of which will, any of which will be big enough to precipitate a military response. And now the president has actually said that there is no military response. Yes, he said that. So what are the Iranians going to deduce from this? And um, if sanctions are lifted, the notion that somehow they're going to take that income and invest it in better health and education for us is, and I'm, I'm, that's, there is that notion, is ridiculous. They're going to spend it on Hezbollah. They're going to spend it on terrorist organizations that are, that are, are posing strategic threats to us. At the bottom, at the end of the day, sir, the major difference for us, and I set this out in an LA Times uh, article I think it came out on Friday, is, and, and this went to, I participated in all these intimate uh, discussions that we had with Iran over the course of nearly five years. We looked at the intelligence, we saw the same intelligence, we derived some of the same conclusions about the nature of the program, where it was, how long it would take them to break it. That, that wasn't the issue. The issue was whether or not the regime was rational. We wanted to get to this point, so now we're getting to this point. Ken, and, and as far, the, the American side, the, the president's position was the Iranian regime is rational, even though it's anti-Semitic, and that it's it's on a cost-benefit analysis. It doesn't want to lose its power. It wants to has regional aspirations, and we're here to help. Uh, on our side, we are dealing, as far as we're concerned, with a medieval jihadist extremist group that is carrying out, is the world's largest state sponsor of terror. Largest state sponsor of terror that openly declares its commitment to destroying, to killing eight million Israelis. And at the end of the day, America's a big country, it's far away from the Middle East, you're not threatened with national annihilation yet by the Iranians, uh, you have very big military capabilities. We are a fingernail clipping size of a country uh, in Iran's backyard, and we are threatened with genocide by these people. And we, ha we have very good army, but we don't have strategic bombers. Our margin for error on Iran is exactly zero. Exactly zero. And it's not about legacy. It's not about reputation. It's about my kids' and my grandkids' lives. And we're not, we're not fooling around on that. We're not, we can't afford to. We just can't afford to. It's not an academic is debate. Is the moment passed for Israel to do anything? Here's my stock answer for that. Israel has the right, the duty, and the capability of defending itself against Iran. Okay. Should, should American Jews... Go ahead, I'll get both of you, whatever. American Jews have a freedom of expression in this country. You can say what you want. And I think it's sometimes very important that American Jews make their feelings expressed. All I ask is that these opinions be expressed with an understanding of Israeli realities and not be detached from Israeli realities. And a feeling of peoplehood, and I'll say it again, a sense of gratitude. Say it with gratitude. I'm sorry, ma'am, what was your question about capabilities? How can you see?
We don't have B-52s, very no. <laughs> Easy. You want to buy us one? Huh? That, that we're not going to go into. But uh, as I, all I'll say again, Israel has the right, the duty, and the ability to defend itself. Do we have the abilities the United States have? We do not. All right, but we, we, we can defend ourselves. Um, let's leave it at that. Some I think Israel deserves a lot of credit. And here, you know, I'm not a member of the Prime Minister's party, but I think he deserves a lot of credit as the person who, in many ways, uh, drove the locomotive of the, of the sanctions. And um, I do think he deserves a lot of credit for that. And the sanctions are what brought the Iranians to the negotiating table, particularly the biting sanctions. And um, I don't know how much more we could have influenced it, because the, the uh, perhaps the most painful thing in terms of no surprises was that the administration negotiated behind our back for seven months without telling us uh, about an issue that was vital, to say the least, to our national security. So um, I don't know how we could have influenced that. We, we, we did have a discussion. They knew where we stood, and they knew that we did not accept the binary view of the administration that there's only two ways to deal with the Iranian nuclear program, through negotiations or through war, right? That the, the alternative to a bad, to, the, to no deal, the alternative to bad deal would be war. No, we think there's a third way. And I say again, collectively we, collectively we, I can think and speak for just about any party in Knesset. And that is, the other way is a better deal. And it's a better deal that's brought out with harder sanctions and a credible military threat so that the Iranian leaders know that they're paying a price for naught. At the end of the day, they may be spending tens of billions of dollars on this nuclear program, but they're not going to get the nuclear weapon because there's a, there's a military threat there. It's going to stop them. And that, that I think, is as close as you can get to an Israeli national position. The alternative to a bad deal is a better deal. <laughs> what was the question? This is the can last question. Can Israel find the, the, be, the best uh, Peter Bergson to plead its cause? Um, I like to say I'm working at it. But um, no, the broader question is how we present ourselves to the world. And, um, and here, um, again, in the book, I dwell on the, the, the challenges we face in the press, everything from ratings, which I think is in many ways our biggest challenge, that... Israel is a, is a, is a very, ex, very exciting story, but um, Palestinians killing Israelis is not as exciting a story as Israelis killing Palestinians. It just isn't, as far as ratings goes. Um, and, and that's a very difficult challenge for us. But we can do better. And, it, and I never get a, an audience. I'm, I don't mean to be in any way disrespectful. I'll never get an audience where someone doesn't stand up and says, how come your PR is so bad? And our PR can be vastly improved. There's no question about it. Um, at the end of the day, it's always a more complicated question. Ratings, we have to have a proactive policy, particularly on the peace process. Um, and uh, we have to invest far, far more in our public diplomacy. Far more. I'm, I'm, I'm in Knesset. One of the reasons, one of my goals in Knesset is to achieve just that. 
Everyone's still so, raising their hands. Yes, I but know. I was told that was the last question. So you can continue the Come conversation when you're... John, uh, thank you so Thank much. you so much. Oh, and everybody can continue the conversation with the book. Thank you for writing the book. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92yondemand.org.